All right, hello, welcome back to Unqualified Analysis, the show with zero qualifications, zero credentials, and you know what, not enough sleep, it just keeps firing off takes, opinions, whatever the hell happens to come out of this show anyways, and uh, you know what, today, a little bit of a different sort of recording session, and this, if this is on YouTube, hey, welcome to the YouTube channel, I'm going to be putting out more of these full-length episodes on YouTube, just trying to, you know, get some get some editing work done, you know, maybe, maybe try and get a, a job in the field I'm looking at, huh? maybe, huh? We'll, we'll see what happens there, but uh, if not, I've failed, so just disregard this whole thing altogether, but uh, today, a little bit of a different show for you today, I mean, we are in the dog days of the offseason here, we're in a weird in-between time between the NFL Combine and the NFL Draft, with a bunch of pro days, bunch of bunch of visits that I just could not give uh, half a almost said the s word there. Gotta gotta clean it up now that we're trying to do some YouTube. Uh, n- n- I'm not about that crap, you know. Uh, as the as the more clean people say, uh, I just don't care about pro days, uh, top thirty visits. It's uh, I feel like a lot of it is subterfuge. I mean, hey, Jalen Carter not even taking any visits outside of the top ten, which if I were him, I wouldn't, because there's not a snowball's chance in H-E double hockey sticks uh, that he's going to end up falling out of the top ten. But with that, we did have a great weekend of college basketball, both in the women's and men's games. Uh, you know, a little bit more controversy in the women's game, which, you know, both good and bad, depending on the way you look at it. But uh, yeah, without further ado, let's just get straight into it. We're going to start off with the basketball here today. And first and foremost, we'll start off with the more interesting Final Four on the women's side of things. Fantastic weekend of women's basketball. Uh, Both sides of the court, really, uh, in the ratings, quite frankly. Um, Both on and off the court. I don't even know what I'm saying there. We're just going to keep it rolling, though. It's early in the morning. I'm recording this just before 9.30, and you know what? I'm not used to talking to Mike this early. That's probably why I'm, I'm uh, talking a little bit uh, quieter than usual, because there's people in my house trying to have some peace and quiet, but I digress. Uh, just a great mix of high-level basketball and fun personal—excuse <clears throat> me, fun personalities on the women's side of things. Uh, first off, Iowa upset South Carolina behind another monster performance from a woman you might have heard of, Caitlin Clark, uh, to earn a berth in the title game. I believe Caitlin Clark in this tournament set the record for like at least points uh, in, a, in a tournament run. I don't know about assists. She's been dealing up dimes. Really, uh, the women's side... Uh, kind of like a Trey Young sort of performance here in this tournament, except for Trey Young didn't make it this far. So we're in kind of uncharted territory and that side of things. Also, Caitlin Clark got at least one more year. She has to be in college, two more years of eligibility. So she could be around at Iowa for a while. Um, all-time great tournament run for Clark, though. She'll she'll be at Iowa for at least another season. Uh, with the NIL opportunities, I mean, she can probably make more in college at this point than she would on her rookie deal in the WNBA. So, I mean, if I were her, I'd stay in college as long as possible because you're probably going to have more fun at Iowa, too. I mean, that's... It's a great town to be. Uh, I think Iowa City is where uh, is where I was at. Great, great town uh, to be a celebrity. They like to they like to party. They're they're a fun loving group of uh, just to see white people over there, but a fun loving group of white people in that part of the country. Uh, so they made it into the uh, the the finals, the final game, the, the championship game, as someone call it. Um, and hey. I don't want to gloss past it. South Carolina, I don't think they lost in like two seasons up into that up until that game. Uh, had last year's player of the year, Aaliyah Boston. This year's player of the year on the other side, Caitlin Clark. 
um, ended up being a, a hell of an upset. I mean, there was just money coming in hand over fist on Iowa, and Vegas didn't hardly move the line at all, which should tell you just about everything you need to know about how they thought of South Carolina. I mean, they were a great, great basketball team. A good upset from Caitlin Clark and Iowa, but just kind of shows uh, what position they were in. On the other side of the bracket, LSU battled with the one seed Virginia Tech, ultimately dominated in the fourth quarter, though, earned their berth in the title game as well. And Kim Mulkey was absolutely swagged out. I mean, all tournament, but I, honestly, I, you know, hand up. I'm a, I'm a bad women's basketball fan. In fact, I only really tuned in for the Final Four, and I didn't really tune in for a whole lot of it. But you know what? I, I got the ESPN app. I can I can look at how things went. I can look at highlights and whatnot. Also, hard not to, to hear about what's happening with how this whole thing ended up. But Kim Mulkey, it's been overshadowed with all the controversy following the title game, which we'll get to in just a second. But, I mean, absolutely swagged out. I mean, Tiger Print... Uh, I think she was in some like some some sort of pink outfit in the final four. Um, don't remember exactly what she was wearing in the championship game, but I can guarantee you it was some absolutely swagged out looking stuff. Um, I mean, say what you will about her outside opinions. I think if you're on one side of the aisle, I think you really like Kim Mulkey. If you're on the other side, you're kind of questionable. There's no politics in here. There, there's no room for that sort of stuff. Kim Mulkey, as far as a personality is concerned, I mean, absolutely one of the best that we have in either men's or women's college basketball, for that matter. Just a, an electric personality. I would listen to her talk on a mic basically all day. If, if for no other reason, then I just love hearing people talk in that Southern draw like she has. But uh, hey, that that set up the battle in the final game between LSU and Iowa. And that is, of course, what got all sorts of people going. LSU was in control for much of the title game to do, in no small part, uh, to some questionable officiating. I guess there was a there was a uh, technical foul called on Caitlin Clark that a lot of, pe a lot of people were questioning. Um, most people I've heard are saying that was kind of a, a BS technical. It is what it is. Um, some other officiating going on. Really, the whole narrative of this game should have been LSU just dominating Iowa in the title game. Also... It's a little bit underplayed here, but how the hell LSU had two losses in the regular season, one of them being to South Carolina, you know, the team that had not been beaten in two years, and the other one being in the SEC uh, uh, tournament. I think they were in the SEC uh, tournament, like, championship game, and that was their only two losses of the entire season. Tell me how they, how, tell me how there's eight other teams at the very least uh, that were ranked ahead of them going into the tournament. It makes absolutely zero sense to me and they were they were just dominant all season they ended up being a three seed and it showed that they were underseeded by the fact that they got all the way to target i mean iowa too they probably shouldn't have been a two seed coming in they probably should have been a one seed uh ended up being underseeded both these teams end up going to the title game anyways i mean the cream generally rises to the top although it's it was a bit of a chaotic one over on the men's side one thing at a time though um they don't, they don't ask how, though. They ask how many. Kim Mulkey and the Tigers won their first national title in program history. I think it's Kim Mulkey's either second or third national title. I can't remember how many she ended up winning at Baylor, but she is quickly turning herself, or has already been that, one of the best coaches in, in women's college basketball history right now. I mean, not quite... I mean, it's going to take a while to be on the level of Gino Auriemma and uh, all those others, but she is right there in the pantheon of all the other uh, great college coaches on the women's side. I mean, and the ceiling is the roof there, to quote Michael Jordan. I mean, she has a lot of a lot of runway left and just seems to be motivated by nothing else 
uh, to steal a quote from from Rich Rodriguez via Pat McAfee, just kicking somebody's ass. Loves doing that for sure, and she has done that basically everywhere she's been. I mean, turned LSU overnight essentially, which has become a little bit easier in the the transfer portal area era, but has turned them overnight from a middle of the road kind of bottom of the pack team in the SEC to one of the best programs in the entire country, a national championship winning program in the course of just two seasons. Incredibly, incredibly proficient in how she ended up building this program up from where it was. But we got to get into the controversy. We had some drama during and after the game as Angel Reese, um, I believe, ended up setting the, I don't know if it was the, the, the single season record. She ended up having like 34 double doubles this season. Incredible player. Uh, and I think that did end up being uh, a record of sorts. I mean, 34. I mean, a lot of teams don't even play 34 games. I could be totally wrong on that, but it feels like, I mean, 34 double doubles. I mean, they only played like 37 games throughout the course of the season. I mean, she had a hell of a year. Um, that's not why we're talking about her. That she talked a heaping helping of shit to Caitlin Clark on the way out. I mean, gave her the the you can't see me sort of celebration directly in her face. And not only did that kind of you know as the time was expiring, followed Caitlin Caitlin Clark around and just did it in her face. And yeah, I mean, there was just immense amounts of shit talking. Personally, I love to see it. Many people did not because, you know, Caitlin Clark, uh, that was her thing. If you didn't watch the, the women's uh, tournament up until this point, hello, welcome to the welcome to the show here. Uh, Caitlin Clark, that was kind of her thing throughout this this tournament. She talked mad amounts of shit on the court and she would, you know, do, do the, the you can't see me sort of celebration. Really, she is like the second coming of Trey Young just on the women's side of the game. She'll shoot threes from basically half half court shoot like 17 of them, make about five. Uh, she really is most proficient inside the arc. Um, I, incredibly proficient inside the arc because she's still right around like 50% field goal percentage a lot of times, even with all of the, the crazy shots she takes from beyond the arc. I mean, she is not very efficient at all from that range, but she keeps taking them anyways. I mean, God bless her. She she tries her best and often makes a lot of uh, incredible highlights. Very very similar to Jimmer Fredette in that as well, uh, but I digress. The, the main thing was Angel Reese, I guess, took exception to the way that media was covering um, Iowa versus South Carolina and then Iowa versus LSU in the title game. Really a, a classic Michael Jordan. I took that personally. I'm not the first one to use that analysis, but I think it's pretty apt in this this situation uh, because none of those games, up until the title game, none of those games really had anything to do with her. And she still took like, oh, I'm going to take that personally. For I mean, you can kind of extrapolate, you know, the South Carolina being a predominantly uh, black group of, of players. Iowa being just a sea of white people, you know, there's some dynamics that go into that, that if they were, if I were on a different show, I'd focus on that. But since I'm not, I'm not gonna, because it's a largely waste of time conversation to where no one truly wins and everyone just starts digging the trenches, getting into their, uh, their specific, um, stances. Dave Portnoy just kind of like, uh, saw a fuse, lit it, and, uh, just kept her going there. I'm not going to go as far as to say uh, what Angel Reese did was classless because, listen, I, many people are calling Reese classic, classless. I'm going to call those people losers. And that, sorry, Dave Portnoy, I'm not sure you're necessarily a loser because you're you're damn near, well, I guess probably not damn near a billionaire at this point, you know, worth $100 million or something like that. Not a loser in that sense. 
Um, you're focusing on the wrong things here, though. And if you're focusing on class, <clears throat> excuse me, um, this is one of those things where I don't know. I, I, don't, I feel like you're focusing on the wrong things if you're focusing on class here. I mean, this was just, it was pure entertainment, man. I mean, Angel Reese going out there talking all this shit. I mean, sure. Was it bad sportsmanship? No question about it. But the thing is, unless you're an Iowa fan, I don't know that you have a whole lot of room to really be upset about this. I mean, I guess if you're one of those older pearl clutching people saying, oh man, we need these, we need these players to just be robots and just be classy, shake hands, say good game after it. And you know what? Just win, win gracefully. But you know what? That's not a very entertaining product. And I think if nothing else, if you're going to grow the women's game, you need entertainment in this whole thing. And what's more entertaining than just some terrible sportsmanship going, I mean, just following Caitlin Clark around for probably like five, ten seconds, just excessively doing the you can't see me celebration in her face. I mean, make no bones about it. It was, it was rude. It was bad sportsmanship. It's probably not something I would have done, though, given my past histories and those sorts of sports. I mean, I've, I've been known to say some wild shit on a basketball court. I mean, who who hasn't at some point in the in the heat of battle uh, said some things that are maybe a little bit regrettable in the trash talk department? I'm not I'm not innocent of that. But here's the thing: if you're not an Iowa fan, there's really not a whole lot of reason to be upset. And if you are upset about this, maybe you should kind of do a little bit of self reflection. I, again. Different show. I'm not going to start going into the, the race dynamics of this whole thing, but maybe maybe ask yourself why you're upset about Angel Reese doing these things. If you are just totally unaffiliated and really a week ago could not give half a shit about the women's side of the tournament, but now all of a sudden in the title game, you are clutching your pearls and you are saying, oh man, uh, Angel Reese, just a classless player, can't have it in the game. Well, yes, you can, because they set all sorts of records in the title game. I mean, I think they had something like a, a, a peak of about like 13 million viewers or something like that. Average just under 10 million. I think that was a women's title game record. Or if not, it's one of the highest rated women's title games in quite some time. I, this is good for the game right now. This is good. And you know what? Having this sort of controversy, it gets eyes on the, 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 the screen, gets asses in seats. I don't see this being a bad thing uh, any way around. I think if you're calling Angel Reese classless, you are kind of a loser. And if you're not a loser, you're acting like one at the very least. So just try to aspire to be better. That, that's really the only thing I can say on that front. And uh, moving away from that, the victory parade fit. I mean, it's about to be iconic for Kim Mulkey. So... Congratulations uh, to, to Kim Mulkey, LSU, Angel Reese. You deserve to talk all of your shit. Um, I, I, I hope to continue to see even more of it. I think we're going to have uh, Caitlin Clark around for at least a while here, at least another year, probably even more than that. And the women's game, uh, on at least uh, at the college level, it's healthier than it's ever been. It's growing. It's getting better. Uh, maybe there's a little bit more spread between uh, a number one team and a number 25 team. Than there is in the men's game, but again, with the transfer portal thing going on, I think you're going to see even even more of a diffusal of talent throughout the years. Um, it's it's been a little bit more prominent on the men's side because there's a little bit more money to throw around in that side of things. But the money is only going to continue to grow for the women's side of things. So I would imagine we're going to be seeing a little bit more of that. Maybe it won't ever get to the point 
where the men's side of the tournament has or the, the men's side of the, the sport has. But for right now, the, the sport is in a good place. Uh, people are acting like idiots. People are having arguments online about women's basketball, which is not something you could probably say in the past several years. And this is a good point uh, brought up by... I believe it was Bo Monty Jones. I listen to a lot of sports podcasts, so it, it's a little bit um, hard to discern which one I ended up finding that in. But if we're caring one way or the other, usually the way we, we treat women's uh, sports, women basketball in general, is we cheer for them all. We, we're, we're wishing for success for everybody involved. I think the fact that there is a villain, uh, a discernible person to, to go against, um, I think it's good for the sport. I think it shows that people are caring more than they were before because there's always been villains in the women's game. It's just we haven't treated them like villains because we're too, we either are so uninformed about it or just don't really care enough in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things uh, to, to make villains and to, to hate some of these people. And you know what? Hate is a good thing. It means you care, and it means the women's game is in a good place. But with that, let's move over to the men's side of things, away from all that controversy. Uh, less recognizable faces on the men's side, but still, fun weekend, uh, plus Monday night in Houston. Uh, that is the reason why we were recording this on Tuesday morning, because, uh, well, wouldn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to record all of the Final Four and just leave out the, uh, the final game of that. Wouldn't make a whole lot of sense at all. So here we are, Tuesday morning, bright and early, just just totally ready to spend my entire day editing and whatnot. But hey, this is this is the grind that we're all a part of here, uh, or at least I am. I digress. In the least probable Final Four matchup, we had the nine seed FAU taking on the five seed San Diego State, and it looked like the Owls might cruise the title game, but. It ain't over until the zeros hit the clock, man, when San Diego State is on the court. The Aztecs were down by 14 at one point in the second half, but FAU started missing shots, and San Diego State started chipping away at that lead. Slowly but surely, it all came down to the final seconds of the game. Down one, Lamont Butler of San Diego State dribbled the length of the court after an errant shot from FAU. Got to his spot, nails a deep fadeaway mid-range shot uh, as time expires to put the Aztecs in the national title game. And what a game there. Uh, my expert observations, FAU's Elijah Martin. I mean, had a monster game in this one. And maybe the tightest shorts in the entire tournament. Explosive dumper on that guy. Either he had the smallest shorts or the most explosive legs of anyone on the court at that point. I mean, it was distracting, though. I mean, he was hugging... Hugging his ass to save their life. I mean, for the for dear life, just hanging on there were his shorts. I mean, absolutely. I mean, good for him. Good, good for him. I mean, that's something that can really catch some eyes going across campus. Being a being a tall guy like that, having an explosive dumper like that. Really, it's the only thing. Uh, maybe not the only thing, but it's good to have around. It's good asset to have in the back pocket, if you will. Uh, pardon the pun there. I'm totally unintentional, but you know what? It all worked out in the end there, didn't it? But also. Steve Fisher actually looks surprisingly cogent for a, a man of his age, either that or he looks surprisingly old for a man of 78. It's hard to nail down exactly. He does kind of look like a skeleton there, but he looks like a skeleton with something going on in the brain. I mean, not not in a bad way. A skeleton with something going on in the brain in a good way. I mean, good, good kind of, you know, cogent thoughts going on. Uh, hey, good for Steve Fisher. Uh, only 78 years old. Good for him for getting out while he still had some life to live. I mean, he probably, you know, out there in the, the you know, beautiful, sunny California over there in San Diego. Not a whole lot of reason to leave there if you're, if you're just like, you know, I mean, if you got the money, if you got the house already, 
what's the point in leaving at that point? I mean, he'll probably be around San Diego State basketball for the rest of his life, and Michigan just, you know, wistfully looking over and, and wondering what could have been uh, if the rules had been a little bit different during his tenure there. Uh, if maybe, maybe he'd have another Fab Five if he would have stuck around at Michigan again. We'll never know, but for now, San Diego State uh, can can claim ownership of Steve Fisher, uh, and he'll be in San Diego for the uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, Brian Dutcher, I don't. He looks like I don't know what he looks like. He looks like just about every like old, uh, older middle aged guy in, in like you know kind of a horror movie. It looks like it's hard to nail down exactly. He kind of reminds me of uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining a little bit with his face sometimes. I don't. I don't know exactly how to put it to you, but I don't know. Something about Brian Dutcher just, I don't know if it rubs me the wrong way. I like his hair. You know, he's a good hair guy. I'm not even quite sure what I'm saying right now, but hey, good guy to have around. I'm rambling up a storm, so let's just move on to the second game of the Final Four. In that second game, it ended up being kind of a wash. I mean, UConn just did what they've done all tournament. They dominated Miami. Uh, they went from holding the number one offense in the country, Gonzaga, to under 50 points to holding the number four, number five offense. This is according to Ken Palm, by the way, in the country, to 59 points. I mean, just stifling defense all tournament, and star big man Adama Sinogo channeling his inner Zebo, getting absolutely zero lift on his jump shot, but nailing two quick threes, and that kind of set the tone for how this game ended up going. Also of note, Sinogo averaging 20.2 points per game on 68% uh, field goal shooting going into the title game. I don't exactly, I was about, I mean, I was laying in bed, slowly drifting off to sleep whenever the title game ended, so I don't know what he ended up uh, averaging for the tournament, but um, I'll tell you what, him doing that, like, I mean, the last time anyone had, had those sorts of numbers in the tournament, it was Corliss Williamson. Can we all, we all know who Corliss Williamson is from, with Arkansas, that was back in 1994, that was the last guy to have those sorts of numbers, 20, 20.2 points per game, 68% shooting, I mean, just crazy, crazy efficiency numbers from Adama Sinogo, uh, he's only the fourth player ever to average 20 plus on 65% shooting in the tournament, and oh, by the way, Sinogo has accomplished all of this while observing Ramadan, which does not allow him to eat or drink before sundown, I mean, just an all-time crazy statistical run, especially given the Ramadan context. I mean, this is a run, I mean, it's hard to just like remember college basketball runs through the years because the player turnover is so incredible. I mean, I would imagine Sonogo is probably going to go straight to the draft. So this will probably be the last run he has with, with UConn, I would imagine. But man, what a great run from Sonogo. What a great run from UConn. And it, it only got better from here. That's a little bit of a foreshadowing for how the title game went. But outside of Sonogo, Game itself was kind of a watch, so let's focus on the dumb external uh, things that happened throughout it. First off, they started the broadcast uh, by showing a Miami fan in a classic super fan attire, just classic, love it, next to a garden variety mom type. Um, and I just want to know, I, I would pay real money to know what the hell those two were talking about on the side. I want to know, like, what, what is going Are they talking about concessions? Are they talking about the Miami team? Uh, I couldn't tell if the if the, the, the mom sort of looking lady was a 
was a Miami fan or if they were a UConn fan. Uh, how depressed was that Miami super fan getting throughout the game and or how excited was the mom getting if she was a UConn fan throughout the whole thing? It's a it's a it's a dynamic that kind of boggled my mind throughout the course of this thing. But I just want to know. I want to know what they were talking about. Was was it just normal stuff? Um, was the Miami super fan just losing his mind the whole time, yelling out on the court, just being being a crazy fan in general? I want to know. I want to know. Did they have a good relationship? If, if anything, were they were they dating? Were they married? If that'd be the that'd be the funniest. Uh, reality if they were married and his wife's just sitting there uh, looking normal and this guy's just being an absolute psychopath uh, right next to her and she's just trying to pretend like she doesn't know this person. I think that's probably the funniest uh, outcome of all. Um, either way, he probably felt like a fool walking away from this one after they just got absolutely drummed over and over by UConn in this game. Um, outside of that, Danny Hurley, Jim Laranaga, Probably had the highest average blood pressure of any coaching matchup in this entire tournament, both men's and women's side. I mean, the, Danny Hurley is an absolute psychopath. I mean, he's he's kind of toned down his energy to a certain extent in the in the media. Uh, certainly in the title game, could have taken some shots at the refs and just said, "Hey, I love these th these guys. These three are very good referees." When you could tell he meant the exact opposite thing. That's a little bit of. It's a little bit of the, the Iowa niceness, Minnesota niceness, however you want to call it. Uh, just just Midwestern saying things you don't necessarily mean because you have to say them. I, I understand that. But uh, Jim Laranega on the other side <clears throat> talked about it here uh, just last week. I mean, Jim Laranega looks like he could pop at any given moment and just have a full-on uh, sort of anxious mental breakdown. I mean, Danny Hurley and Jim Laranega, I'm surprised there wasn't an explosion of sorts on the court. I mean, it was... It was one of those, it's who is going to absolutely lose their mind first? Is it going to be Danny Hurley or Jim Laranega? Spoiler alert, it's Danny Hurley because he just, I mean, maybe he's toned it down in the media, but on the sidelines, he is an absolute maniac. I mean, they're up by like 15, uh, like 20 points, and he is just yelling at his team, just trying to get them to, hey, go up by 25. Stop making mistakes. Sure, you're up by 15, 20, but stop it. I will sit you on this bench if you keep making these mistakes. I mean, it is just... Uh, it was just a wonderful matchup to just watch the, the, the interpersonal dynamics. I mean, obviously, they didn't talk to each other, but just Jim Laranega and Danny Hurley, uh, absolute psychos there on the sidelines. So you love to see it. Um, as far as the game itself, Nigel Pack, Nigel Pack, I don't know how you, the, the nice gel pack over there uh, having to leave the game to change his shoes. And uh, that athletic specimen of a Miami trainer had a, had a handoff there at some point too, just like lumbering over to the sidelines, kind of doing that, you know, when you're like kind of, you want to look like you're rushing somewhere, but you don't actually want to hustle. So you're kind of like, getting a lot of body movement going, but your legs just aren't really following suit. You're kind of just doing, you know, I call it the, uh, the, the century high school jog there. And I mean, I think everyone had a, a certain, um, a certain sort of, uh, version of this at their own place. But you know, when you're trying to just, you know, do a, a quote unquote warm up lap, but you're not trying to run that fast, but you want to make it look like you're running fast. You know, you work the arms a lot, but you don't work the legs too hard. That kind of feels like what the, uh, what the trainers were doing there, uh, for Miami, Either that or they just are, I mean, some of the, I mean, you can tell why they weren't on the team. Some of the most uh, unathletic people on the entire uh, court at that point. 
I mean, not not a great look from an athleticism standpoint uh, for either of those trainers that were involved there. Um, hey, they they certainly hustled or at least looked like they were. But hey, no no spare sort of uh, shoe on the sideline from Nigel Pack. I think he kind of um, uh, messed up the shoe. Either that or they just didn't have good grip on the bottom. I don't know exactly what it ended up being or the reason for it, but I mean, had to get a, had to come out of the game, get a new pair of shoes. And I mean, just watching the trainers trying to run from the sidelines uh, to the locker room and run back, just kind of like lumbering back and forth. I mean, it's just, just good TV. I mean, it's probably the most interesting thing that was going on because again, UConn absolutely worked Miami in this game, but I digress. Uh, we also got a ref doing high knees down the sidelines, looking like, like a vulture running away from some roadkill as a car comes by you know the you know the look when you know you see vultures in the middle of the the road they're eating a squirrel or something i mean squirrels i'll tell you what kind of a delineation here but i mean as someone who drives around basically all day for like five days a week generally i'm i'm in my own personal hell but that's you know neither here nor there you see a lot of roadkill Squirrels are the most common, man. Those guys absolutely freeze and freak out when there's a car coming. And, you know, sometimes that results in their untimely demise. Neither here nor there. Just squirrels, man. You never know what they're going to do. If you just don't like killing animals on the road, which I think most sane people don't like to do, maybe, you know, if there's no one behind you, just just hit the brakes, let them figure things out. They'll eventually go off the road. But uh, until then, maybe maybe don't try to, maybe try to like let them figure it out for a second and hit the brakes. That's, that's just kind of uh, my animal loving self coming out the play here. But I digress. I'm talking more about the vultures. You see a vulture eating some sort of roadkill, whether it's a possum, it's a squirrel, it's a groundhog, something in the middle of the road. Obviously, they got to run out of the way uh, whenever there's a car coming. <clears throat> and you know what it looks like. They got the they got the wings up. They're like, ha, 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 ha. Just kind of, you know, just, just, just moving their legs. They don't have a whole lot of range of motion down there, but they're kind of hibbity hopping out of the way. That's kind of what this, this ref looked like. I mean, high knees, just absolutely. That's the only way I can really describe it. I mean, one of the more athletic things I saw the entire game, I mean, just textbook high knees. Everyone's got, I mean, it was early in the game too, so everyone's got to get their warm-up in. The ref did not have the time to warm up pre-game, I suppose, just doing too much, I don't know, ref duties, whatever refs do uh, before games. So, you know, I get it. You got to go in, do your high knees, get the, get the blood pumping a little bit. And, you know, I'm just glad he graced us on national television with that show looking like a vulture running away from some roadkill just just love to see it uh when it's all said and done and uh they just kept showing this one particularly uh like like one particular ethnically ambiguous fan in the Yukon student section in this game um and i just want to know what his hair care routine is because that shit was looking immaculate he kind of had like a like a like a, a pseudo mullet sort of thing it wasn't quite a mullet because it didn't look like total trash but it's like you know kind of shorter on top kind of a, a longer in the back uh but i'll tell you what i mean he had he had the earring going he had looked like he'd been working out somewhat or he just you know the the beauty of having a college kid body he just didn't have to work out but still looked pretty pretty good i mean this guy he was living his best life and that hair i mean it looked just immaculately curated. I just want to know what that guy was doing. Obviously, I'm not going to find a whole lot of use for it. I'm a buzz cut guy. I'd like to be low maintenance. I paid $20 for this haircut. That's including the tip, by the way. Uh, no free ads, but that haircut place, nice and cheap. I love going there. 
only go there every couple months or so because I'm a lazy son of a bitch. So obviously, hair care, not necessarily my thing, but for the good of everyone around. I mean, this guy, this guy was absolutely, I mean, maybe not swagged out because the outfit he was wearing, I mean, he was pretty standard uh, college basketball fan attire. I mean, I gotta say, but this guy, this guy's hair, I mean, he showed up with a purpose and it was to show off what he had going on. The lettuce up top was absolutely immaculate and uh, for the good of everyone involved, for the good of everyone that actually cares about uh, style and profile in their hair, I think he should he should let out, let out some secrets. I don't know what this guy's ad is, but we should all follow him and we should all, you know, take some take some notes. He should be a hair influencer. That's what I'm getting at here. This kid had a immaculate head of lettuce and uh you know what? There you go. That that was pretty much it for the uh for the final four. We had San Diego State and we had Yukon in the title game and uh Yukon came in as a heavy favorite. And you know what? San Diego State got out to a, a quick start, but I was watching the game and I've, I've been following San Diego State throughout this tournament. I know kind of how this thing works. I mean, they may start out hot, but when it comes down to it, uh, they're going to get cold at some point. That's exactly what happened in this game. Uh, UConn just slow, not even really slowly, they pulled away in the first half, took control. I mean, they were up by uh, 14 or 15 uh, at halftime. Uh, Danny Hurley was still upset, said they should be up 20 because they, they had uh, some layups missed. Basically, if, if you got a coach that is harping on, hey, we're up 15 or 12, whatever it was, we could be up 20 if, if we would have executed properly. Uh, there's not a snowball's chance in hell that the other team is coming back. And credit to San Diego State, they cut it to single digits, I think, with like, uh, I don't know, like five... Uh, six minutes left or something like that. Uh, really did not feel that close, though, and it really never got that close again. Ended up pulling away. I believe the final score was like like 76 to, to 59 or so, or 76 to 61 or something along those lines. I mean, just absolutely worked them. UConn ran away with the title game. That's their fifth national title in the last 20 years or so. Just a, I mean, hard to say anything other than they are a blue blood at this point. I think they have more national championships than someone like a, like a Kansas. I think probably even Michigan State or someone along those lines probably got more uh, national titles than those. And they weren't really considered in that sort of category before this title run. But it's hard to see them as anything different. Obviously, everything kind of went and fell apart around them uh, throughout this whole thing. I mean, it was one of the crazier uh, men's tournaments that we've had in, in quite some time. But even in the midst of that, they just absolutely worked everyone they went up against. Uh, really speaks highly of uh, Iona, Rick Bettino, and that team uh, being ahead by two points at halftime in that first round matchup. Obviously, UConn ended up pulling away when it was all said and done. But, I mean, Iona was the only one that kept it close in the first half even. I mean, UConn, I mean, they came from a four seed. But I'll tell you what, they had one of the more dominant tournament runs that I can remember in recent memory. And in the midst of everything that was going on around them, I mean, they were just a, a paragon of consistency in the midst of abject chaos. So, I mean, Danny Hurley, I mean, this is going to do wonders for their recruiting. This is going to do uh, wonders for his career prospects over there. I mean, obviously, if it collapses precipitously enough, I mean, ask Kevin Ollie, this can all go away in a heartbeat if you let it. 
But I think Danny Hurley, I mean, he did it at Rhode Island. He's continued to do it at UConn. I mean, obviously started out slowly when he first got there, but called a shot in the press conference uh, that I think was back in like either 2020 or 2021 saying, hey, I mean, we might not look like it now, but but buy our stock now where it's only going to go up from here. We'll be there at some point. And what do you know, like two, three years down the line, they got a national championship uh, to show for it. Uh, yeah, congrats to UConn, congrats to Danny Hurley. I didn't have a whole lot of notes written down for the national title game because one, it was kind of a wash, and two, and you know what? This is what I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on my soapbox for a second. I understand that we gotta include the West Coast, like oh, we're gonna get better ratings if we start it later. Ooh, we get we get some more basketball fans in the door. You know what? Fuck those guys on the West Coast. It should be a crime to start any sort of sporting event after 9 p.m. 9.20 is just, I mean, it is entirely too late to start a basketball game. And I might be sounding like an absolute old person right now. I promise, I'm only 27 years old. I mean, I might I mean, might talk like a 42-year-old, but I'm only 27 years old when it's all said and done. But I'll, I'll tell you what, man, I'd already walked my dog and usually when I walk my dog, the next thing that happens is I brush my teeth and I go to bed because I have good dental hygiene and I'm, a, I'm an old person in my sleep schedule. I wake up at like, you know, 7.30, 8 in the morning on my off days. So I, I, I hate it. I absolutely hate these, these late tips. I, I wish they would do away with them. Anything beyond 8.30, uh, you should just, you should be flogged as the, uh, as the, um, Ah, executives, whoever, whoever comes up with this timing uh, of when these tip-offs happen and when these games start, you should be flogged for starting this game so late. I understand you got to worry about your, your ratings on the West Coast. Oh, they're not off work just yet. Well, you know what? The majority of your viewers are on the East Coast, so you should act accordingly. Yes, is this, is this the textbook example of West Coast bias? Maybe, maybe it is, but at the same time, fuck them. Have you ever considered that? Just, just fuck them. I mean, there's, you know, sparsely populated on the West Coast. They'll figure it out. They'll, they'll DVR it or something like that. They'll, they'll catch up, you know, fast forward through the commercials or whatnot. I mean, there, there are all sorts of money bags out there anyways. So, hey, you know, that, that could be good for them. Um, it's just not good for us on the, on the East Coast. I mean, I was, uh, I would just, I mean, it looks like I'm having a seizure there, but I was just falling asleep. I mean, I was just, I was half asleep basically the entire second half. I mean, for no, for not in the less, in the least reason, easy for me to say, um, because it was just not a very good game in the first place. But also, I mean, just I, it was like eleven o'clock. I'm I'm asleep by eleven o'clock most nights. I mean, you are keeping me up way past my bedtime. I mean, I finished this game in bed. I barely made it to the finish line. I just you know watched the confetti come down, and I just you know slowly closed my eyes eyes as I turned off the TV and went to sleep. Uh, that shouldn't be a thing. That, that shouldn't be a thing. You know what? Take a note from the Super Bowl, all right? Uh, play it on Sunday. Well, we, you know, uh, there, there's some conflicts there as far as scheduling and, and the women's thing and yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, you know... Move move around the timing. Maybe maybe you play a Final Four game on. Uh, make it make it uh, Thursday Friday instead of Friday Saturday like we had. So you know you can have the women's title game on Saturday. You can have the men's title game on Sunday. Just start that shit at like six o'clock, seven o'clock. I mean, just I'm I will stand on this hill until I die on it. There should not be a sporting event happening after nine p.m. Now Pac-12 after dark. Uh, those those 10 p.m. kickoffs uh, in the fall, 
okay with that. I, I am okay with that. But like a major sort of like national title game to have a tip off at, at 9.20 p.m. I mean, it's just, it's un-American. It, that's what it is. It, it's just un-American. Move around the timing if you need to. Move around the schedule if you need to. But by God, don't, we, we can't keep doing this. I mean, they're gonna. It, it, it happens every single year, and I complain about it just about every single year. But man, we, we're we better as a society than this. We need to do away with these late tips, and I will, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, with that, though, talk for a good, what was that, like 30, 40 minutes? Uh, I mean, damn near 40 minutes, a little bit over 40 minutes uh, on the subject of, of college basketball. So let's just get back in my wheelhouse, shall we? We are talking uh, NFL and not much to talk about, but we're talking about it anyways. And uh, like I said at the start, not a whole lot to talk about right now other than the commies uh, sale ramping up. $6 billion seems to be the price tag. And uh, the group led by Josh Harris, the this Philadelphia 76ers owner, I think that's the one that's got like uh, like Magic Johnson. Uh, I think there's another prominent uh, uh, former player of some sport in there as well. I can't remember if it's a basketball player or, or otherwise, but I digress on that front. Uh, those seem to be the leader in the clubhouse at this point. As expected, Jeff Bezos is, is nowhere to be found. I don't think, I mean, Dan Snyder would soon die uh, by his own hand. He would sooner kill himself uh, than, than sell the team to the guy that basically ended up putting him in this situation in the first place. Uh, by proxy, I suppose. He didn't write the articles in the Washington Post, but the Washington Post is where the articles came out, and it's a publication that Jeff Bezos very publicly owns. So it, it kind of uh, works out that way. Dan Snyder is a guy that holds a grudge like just about no one else on the planet. But other than that, not really a whole lot going on, but a few noteworthy headlines to hit on. Uh, first off, I mean, this was just asinine. Arthur Blank, I mean, just the expert risk evaluator when it's all said and done. Uh, apparently, according to him, Deshaun Watson, who's had multiple ACL tears, and I don't know, maybe you haven't heard, uh, a couple dozen sexual assault allegations against him when the Falcons were willing to shell out three firsts to acquire him. Less of a risk than, than Lamar Jackson, apparently. Lamar Jackson style, just too risky for what Arthur Blank is saying. Never mind that Deshaun Watson consistently, uh, even, even putting aside the sexual assault allegations, because I think they speak for themselves and already make this statement asinine, even from specifically what Arthur Blank is talking about here, just the injury perspective, up until last, I mean, sure, you get a couple games missed here and there from Lamar Jackson, sure, but up until this past season, we've not really had a whole lot of major knee injuries for Lamar Jackson. He certainly hasn't torn an ACL ever, and Deshaun Watson, even though he doesn't necessarily run like Lamar Jackson does, he's not uh, of an integral part of the running offense. He's, he went to the Russell Wilson school of extend the play, extend the play, eventually get absolutely clobbered, but throw the ball way downfield, get a, get a big completion or something along those lines. That's still a very risky sort of style of play. This is just a statement from Arthur Blank that doesn't make any sense unless you are bad at evaluating risk, in my opinion. I don't know what the hell is going on with the Lamar Jackson situation. It, weirdly enough, it seems more and more likely that the Ravens, um, I mean, it was a calculated risk when it was all said and done, but it seems like the Ravens have the uh, the, the most robust market for Lamar Jackson. It just doesn't seem like uh, he's getting a whole lot of uh, good offers outside of the Ravens. Now, 
that can that can all change after the draft. I'm I'm kind of at this point of the opinion that teams are kind of zeroed in on the draft. And hey, if they get a quarterback in the draft that they were looking for, probably not going to go after Lamar Jackson. But if they end up out in the cold, like uh, like a Colts, for example, if they're out there just you know they want to get a quarterback, end up you know someone trades ahead of them. Uh, they don't end up getting the guy that they want, so they end up trading back, and, and they don't end up getting a quarterback. you got to roll with Gardner Minshew. Maybe that's a situation where you look at it and be like, all right, let's let's go look and uh, explore the uh, the Lamar Jackson side of this thing uh, right now. But even in the midst of that, I mean, it just doesn't – and I, I get that they like Desmond Ritter. I mean, he's on a very favorable uh, team-friendly contract. He, he really, I mean, didn't play great last year, but only improved down the stretch with every single consecutive game that he ended up starting. So, I mean, you want to see what you got there. And they've really built a, a solid offense around him. Still got to do some stuff in the receiver room, but I think they can address a lot of that through the draft. They got a great deep, not a great defense, but a very well retooled defense on the other side of things for him to work with. So, I mean, either way, I, I, I don't really understand why, I mean... Lamar Jackson's he's a, he's a former MVP for God's sake. I don't understand why the market has been uh, so lackluster as it has been. I think part of that is Lamar Jackson not having an agent to act as a proxy to go drum up some interest with other teams. Part of that is just the reality of the situation. I don't know exactly what the hell is going on there, but what I do know is the the statement from Arthur Blank saying. Uh, implying anyways that Deshaun Watson uh, with those multiple ACL tears and the legal troubles that he was facing at the time and hey maybe they had some inside knowledge saying that that wouldn't go anywhere when it was all said and done or or what what have you um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense especially when you, you consider that Lamar Jackson Again, former MVP. That's something that Deshaun Watson simply cannot say. And Lamar Jackson has led teams to the playoff, won playoff games. Um, I'm not sure Deshaun Watson has really done that either. And sure, he was down with the Texans, you know, playing with a, with a hand behind his back, essentially, when it comes to, to winning games. But it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, with Arthur Blank's reasoning. I'm going to need a, a better reason. I don't think he's going to end up giving it to us, though, and I don't think a lot of owners are going to end up giving it because they don't want to say the quiet part out loud is that yeah, we don't want to guarantee that much of the contract. Uh, and there's really no there, there's no confirmation as to what Lamar Jackson is looking for in a contract, but we can all kind of assume that's very high guarantees, and I don't think there's a lot of teams willing to give uh, that high of guarantees that he is looking for, and I'm probably using the uh, using the play style as a, as a cop-out to not give those guarantees, but at the end of the day, it's more just because they don't want to set the precedent of fully guaranteed contracts. I mean, I, I mean, might as well move right into it. Next headline here, uh, Jim Ursay continuing to say the quiet part out loud. These owners, they don't want to pay. They simply don't want to pay fully guaranteed contracts. He told a group of reporters at the league meetings he doesn't want players to get fully guaranteed contracts. Also said it'd be bad for the game, bad for the league if they did that. And are we truly surprised by this? I mean, owners... And it's kind of harping on what I'm talking about with Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson wants all these guarantees, I would imagine. Uh, and again, no no confirmation from that because Lamar Jackson uh, never puts out any, any information, much to his detriment, I would imagine, uh, to a certain extent. Um, but 
I would assume he wants very high guarantees, and I would assume uh, the very high guarantees in addition to the, the draft compensation. I mean, it's a it's a price I'd pay in, in a, a hot second here, but it's also a price that it's got some wide-reaching ramifications, and there's 30 other owners that'd be looking at you sideways um, saying, hey, why, why did you do this? So are we truly surprised that Jim Ursay came out? Also, it's Jim Ursay. He just stays saying the quiet part out loud when it comes to damn that damn damn Snyder over there it still can't say it even even through the joking part of it uh whether it's saying Dan Snyder needs to sell the team over there in Washington um whether it's talking about fully guaranteed contract whether it's talking about his own damn draft pick this dude has never been one to mince words he's never really been one for for subtext and subterfuge not really surprised that Jim Ursay is the one that came out and say it. And you know what? I don't think it'd be a surprise if this is how the rest of the owners feel as well. I mean, this is kind of business owners want to pay as little as possible. It's, it's kind of is what it is. This is the story as old as time. Employees want more money. The, the uh, employers don't want to give that money. And we find a happy medium place in, in the middle where no one gets exactly what they want, but everyone gets a little bit of what they want. And uh, yeah, that's just kind of where we're at right now with that whole Jim Mersey situation. But can we really, can we really be surprised that it's Jim Mersey doing this whole thing? I still have no idea what's going to happen with Lamar Jackson. It it I it boggles my mind to think that the Ravens are still kind of the front runner to bring him back. Um, I'll tell you right now, they're not bringing him bringing him back on the franchise tag. If they're just leaving it up to uh, just the franchise tag, if they don't get a, an extension done uh, by the deadline, there, I mean, he's not going to play next season. I, I hate to break it to him, but it would be foolish for him to play on that thirty-one million dollar franchise tag when he Daniel Jones just got forty million a year. If if Lamar Jackson plays for $31 million next year, that would be a bad business decision. I I would sooner rather see him just totally forfeit an entire year, but stay healthy, uh, just pull Le'Veon Bell, if you will, trying to get that money, rather than go out there on the franchise tag and uh, play for less than he's worth. Uh, it, it just doesn't doesn't really make a whole lot of sense uh, why the market is what it is at this point, but uh, hard to see it getting any better until after the draft. So let's move out of the uh, Lamar Jackson and Lamar Jackson-related issues and uh, into some player movement, shall we? Uh, really only one deal of note this week, um, or really a couple deals, but they, all, they both happen with the same team. Uh, Calais Campbell signing a one-year deal with the Atlanta Falcons. He's, it's a one-year, could be up to $9 million, but $7 million guaranteed. And that's a, that's a hell of a percentage to, uh, to guarantee to a guy. I mean, great deal for Calais Campbell, I, I would say. Uh, a guy that wasn't sure what his prospects would be after the Ravens cut him. Wasn't sure if he would have to take a, a massive pay cut, play for way less than what he's worth. But the, hey, the Falcons... I mean, they are making some moves on the defensive side of the ball. They they picked up all sorts of defenders. I mean, they picked up uh, I think it was Jesse Bates that they ended up picking up uh, from the, from the Bengals. One of the the two Bengals safety that that just skipped town over the course of this offseason. Um, they picked up some some great front seven players. I, I can't remember off the top of my head because there's so much player movement, but a bunch of front seven guys they picked up to kind of bolster that a little bit. The defense has always been kind of a uh, kind of a, a soft spot for the for the Falcons, not in a good way either. I'm talking soft spot in it's an area that, that teams exploited early and often all last season, all season before. And when you got Arthur Smith, you really just need, and this was kind of 
something that the Packers never quite got a handle on. You really just need a quality defense on the other side of things uh, to end up having a good good team when you got a great mind on the other side. It was Aaron Rodgers with the Packers. It's Arthur Smith with the Falcons, and I, I'm thinking really highly of the Falcons this year. Also, speaking of that offense, they signed a former Bucks deep threat, Scotty Miller Scoots over there. Uh, sneaky, fast guy, only because he's a white dude, to a one-year deal, uh, really adding a different dimension to what they have in that offense. You know, Drake London, uh, they got that guy in there. They got Kyle Pitts in there. A couple big, tall receiving types, uh, kind of, uh, you know, stretch, not, not stretch the field, but, you know, exploit the middle of the field, make some crazy catches, but won't necessarily stretch you vertically. Scotty Miller will do that. He's, he's, I think he's a great guy to slot in there. Uh, third, fourth receiver type. He was kind of buried in the depth chart with the Bucks over the last couple of years. Also uh, suffered from the fact that Tom Brady's arm strength just kind of dropped off the past, at, at the very least last year, year before it was kind of noticeable as well. If you if you kind of watch, I'm kind of talking out of my ass in that one. It was certainly noticeable last year though. And I think Scotty Miller in particular suffered because of that. But going to the Bucks, uh, I can't I can't say I, I know a whole lot about Desmond Ritter's uh, qualifications when it comes to throwing a deep ball, but at least he's got a young arm, maybe get it down the field a little bit more, and it provides a, a an aspect that the Falcons simply haven't had. And also, Scotty Miller, they're getting him on a, on a fairly decent price as well. I didn't see the actual contract details, but being a fourth-string receiver and not getting a whole lot of reps, not getting a whole lot of production, you're not going to demand a, uh, a great deal of, of um, capital on the open market, if you will. So they probably got him on a fairly affordable contract and he's going to contribute outsized to what his uh his numbers would say i'd imagine so good guy to have in the building there uh i mean falcons continuing to have a damn good offseason i mean arthur blank i mean circuitous and um kind of mind-boggling not really kind of confusing logic uh there from arthur blank when it comes to, to, to what he's doing with lamar jackson and why they're deciding not to go in that direction but as far as the uh, the on-field stuff goes, Terry Fontenot doing a pretty damn good job this offseason of acquiring talent. Uh, this is going to be a big draft to see what they can do. Same thing with the Panthers. All of a sudden, we've got a race at the top of the NFC South right now. The Panthers are putting together a solid little team. The Falcons are putting together a solid little team. We're going to have both of those teams really making a playoff push this year. One or both of them might make it. I'm excited to see what that race is going to end up being because uh, the bottom half, I mean, the Saints get Derek Carr. I'm not sure how much that uh, improves their prospects. I'm not really sure how much of an upgrade uh, Derek Carr is over Andy Dalton at this point in his career, and I'm more than open to being proven wrong on that front. But uh, the NFC South, certainly better than it was last year, I think. Um, not the Bucks. The, the Bucks are, oh, man, Good luck, Bucks fans. It's going to be a rough year for y'all, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, up next, we have got um, one of the resolutions that came down uh, during the league meetings. Probably the most notable one that came down during the league meetings. A lot of it, the other stuff was just kind of, you know, uh, tightening some things up. I mean, they, they, they um, uh, what's the word? Uh, they got the fourth down stuff. They um, included that in the replay uh, sort of stuff. Um, and I guess that's just kind of like, whenever there's a fourth down play, whether it, whether they make it or not, uh, I think the refs can like automatically review that, or they're supposed to automatically review that like they do at the goal line, uh, or any sort of scoring play for that matter. Um, so I think that's a good addition. Um, the number zero players were a number zero. That is the most prominent one. The one that most people were talking about still won't let offensive linemen do it. So they're still cowards in my book. I mean, 
we will not have justice, and I'm going to stand on my soapbox here again. We're not going to have justice and full player parity in this league that just values parity more than anything else until we have got 330-pound offensive tackles with single-digit numbers. I will not rest until that happens. There is nothing more entertaining than seeing small numbers on enormous men. That's just that's just a, a, a you know what? It's a fascination of mine. It's it's a, a, a sick obsession, if you will. I don't know if obsession is the right word. But it's something I like to laugh at. All right, I like you know, hand up. I like to fat shame sometimes, and having fat guys with small numbers, it just tickles my heart. It, I mean, it's it looks ridiculous, and I love to see it. And we won't have we won't have justice at all until O linemen are allowed to wear numbers other than 50 through 70, 79 or something along those lines. We need big men in small numbers, but uh, Calvin Ridley. One of the many players to, to change right away to that number zero. Uh, also, thankfully, a resolution to adopt flex scheduling for uh, Thursday night games narrowly shot down. Thank God. I mean, it, it, it's expected to be revisited in May because the resolution only lost by two votes. It was really... And you, you look at it closer, the Panthers and the Broncos both abstained. So if if those two teams voted and they voted for it, we could be talking totally different right now, and this still might end up passing uh, in May whenever they, they revisit this thing. But I hate this. I mean, I, I hate this so, so much. And we'll, we'll leave the number zero stuff to the side. I just wanted to get on my soapbox and say we need justice for the offensive linemen out there. Those big sons of bitches should wear any sort of number they want. Hell, give them number 30 for all I care. Hey, some of them were probably running backs in high school, some of them in college. Shout out to, to Mac Brown, uh, the, the defensive lineman who started at Texas as a running back, then gained 80 pounds and had to move over to the defensive side of the ball. Um... Those guys, they deserve justice here, all right? They deserve to have their number be whatever they so desire. The world should be their oyster, all right? If you can identify as any gender you want, or if you're like Rachel Dolezal, uh, identifying as any race you want, these offensive linemen should identify with any number they want, all right? And that should be that should be the progress we're all looking for. All you all you leftist sort of people, this is the justice we need to be we working for here. This is the most important thing on anyone's docket, quite frankly. I'm gonna hop off my soapbox now though, and hop on to a different one about Thursday night football. Because listen, the only way, and I mean the only way that this flex scheduling could work is if they let the teams know like three weeks ahead of time, because it Moving a game from Sunday up to Thursday, I don't think the average fan realizes what a player goes through throughout the course of a week just to be able to play on a Sunday. I mean, they this is a this is the most violent game we've got, quite frankly. I mean, you could say rugby, all that stuff. The fact that they don't have pads, um, obviously, I mean, probably it looks like they would have a higher rate of injury, but at the same time. Not having pads, not playing behind uh, the helmet and the shoulder pads, it leads to less big hits when it's all said and done. And you can use your body as a weapon in football in a way that you simply can't do it in rugby. And these are the best athletes in some of the best athletes in the entire world in the NFL, and they are just trying to kill each other on a daily basis. And then, I mean, talk about these linemen. They are in physical, just brutal combat every single snap. I mean, you talk about a run play. I mean, they're just running heads into each other pretty much. I mean, breaking fingers, spraining ankles. I mean, twisting knees. I mean, these guys are, 
I mean, most of them, I mean, I don't want to say most of them, but many veterans, I mean, it gets to a point where you can hardly walk on a Monday when you get done with that. And then you're expecting these guys to turn around on a Thursday. Uh, already Thursday night football is, is an inhumane thing in the first place. I mean, you're just asking these guys to, you know, all right, you just played a game on Sunday. You can barely walk on Monday, but you know what? Take that off day on Monday, and you know what? Three days down the line after that, we are playing a football game. Doesn't matter how you feel. Pop that tour at all, man. We we care about player safeties. We just don't care about your liver at all. So, yeah, you, you pop that tour at all. You get in that game, and you just totally tear your body to shreds uh, for the good of entertainment. I think a lot of media types are seeing this as, oh, it's a good thing. We want football on all days of the week. We want to we wanna make this uh, a spectacle all nights of the week. First off, I don't agree with that either. I think uh, there's something to be said about the scarcity of the game making it a more entertaining product. I think you've seen uh, the fruits of that labor of of getting rid of the scarcity in the NBA. I mean, obviously, it's a different sport in basketball. You can uh, you can play more games. It it's a road grading sort of of thing. Uh, the the NBA schedule that just wears down your body with how much you play uh, and how many miles you put on the physical miles that you put on the body running up and down the court that whole time. So it is a little bit different. It is still uh, a grueling thing. But you look at it. They they play games every single night of the week, and it's you know they got load management. No one gives a damn about the regular season, except for me uh, betting on NBA games. I also, by the way, since I started putting out public picks, 2015-1, thank you very much. We'll have to see how the uh, how the, that all shakes out today. I got three picks that I got no idea about uh, on this docket, but I digress when it's all said. We don't got time uh, to worry about that sort of stuff right now. But back to the issue at hand. I really delineated on that one. Thursday night games. If you're flexing Thursday night games, especially on short notice, you are absolutely, I mean, these players, talking about all the injury stuff, that is all to, to kind of lay out for you. They have a routine they go through. They're, they got to go through the training staff. They got to get some 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 work done on their injuries. They got ice bath. Uh, they got rehab to go to. And if you just, I mean, move up a game from Sunday to, to Thursday, I mean, my God, you're moving up three days, I think that is. Like, uh, let me do the quick math here. I'm a, I'm a fifth grader. So uh, Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Thursday, counting backwards there. That's, you know, four days that you're moving that thing up. Especially if you're doing it on short notice. Truly, the only way that the flex scheduling can work is if you let the teams know like three weeks ahead of time that this is what you're doing so they can kind of mold their schedules accordingly. If you're just like like two weeks out, basically, just saying, oh, well, uh, you know, you got a game next Sunday, and it was it was supposed to be on Sunday, but uh, we're gonna move that up to Thursday now, and uh, fuck your schedule. Uh, this is you're gonna take it and you're gonna like it. That's not going to work. You're gonna grind players' bodies into dust, and this is a resolution that looks like it'll probably end up passing eventually. I hate it. I think it's gonna be bad for player health. Um, and I, I hope they reconsider, but it looks like the direction they're going to go. I think this is going to be bad for the game, quite frankly. I think it's going to, in the long run, probably lead to the lower player shelf lives. Um, at the very least, I, I want to say, if you're gonna, if you're gonna adopt this new flex scheduling for Thursday night to where, I mean, sure, it'll probably lead to, to better matchups on, on paper, uh, but it's going to really be to the detriment of a lot of players, uh, bodies and health. At the very least, you can you can mandate that every team, <clears throat> excuse me, you can mandate that every team has to have grass fields. 
I, I think pretty much every player on the face of the planet. And you can, I mean, the NFL is like jumping through hoops, kind of like contorting themselves, uh, like someone trying to put, like like that person, you know, at a, at a carnival, you know, the contortion is trying to put themselves in a box. That's what the NFL is trying to do with, with the numbers they're putting out as far as like justifying keeping turf fields around uh, as opposed to the, uh, to, to adopting grass fields. Let's not let's let's call this what it is. They they don't want to spend a whole lot of money on it. But at the very least, if you're gonna have this flex scheduling and then put players' bodies through a meat grinder, at the very least, you could mandate a, a grass fields. They're not gonna do that because the the owners are the owners and they're a bunch of cheap asses when it's all said and done. But I hate this. I, I absolutely hate this. And what you're probably gonna end up seeing more than anything is. Uh, players that were already injured going into Thursday night games are going to get low management days. They're not going to play. They're not going to risk players uh, being further injured just because you want to have a, a quote-unquote better matchup on Thursday night. No, coaches care uh, about the, the the big picture more than anything else, I would imagine. And you want to win a game, sure, but you also don't want to jeopardize your, your future prospects at the end of the season. So uh, if, if you got a player that was kind of on, on the borderline, was going to be a game-time decision that next Sunday, there's no chance they're playing on Thursday. And that, that's already that's already a trend you're seeing in Thursday night games. I mean, players just not not playing in Thursday nights because they're, they're too injured to do so. And that's kind of kind of part of, of why the games have not been uh, the best in the world. Again, I, I think this is a resolution that will ultimately end up passing, but make no bones about it. I absolutely hate it more than anything else in the world. Uh, let's move on to another headline, though. I have rambled entirely too much in this episode. Hell, we're going on, what, like an hour at this point? Yeah, we're over an hour, so i got to put this thing into a little bit of warp drive here. Uh, Packers have given up on acquiring the 13th overall pick in a Rodgers trade. This was a, this was a big hurdle that needed to be cleared because this was simply never... It was never something that the Jets were going to do, and I don't think the Packers realized that. I think they were standing, uh, they were standing their ground for quite some time. They were saying, "Hey, if we're going to give up our best quarterback in franchise history, we're going to need a first-round pick." But also, we all know Aaron Rodgers is never planned for the Packers again. Obviously, the Jets need a quarterback; otherwise, they're going to be right in the same position that they were last year. And oh, by the way, White Mike went down to Miami to live his best life with no state income tax and great weather all year as a backup quarterback. Still, again, uh, so you're you're basically running with uh, Zach Wilson. That that could be fun. That, that yeah, we all saw how that went over the last couple of years. I'm sure that he's got a lot of potential. Hey, if you if you listen to Billy Football, part of my take ceiling is Patrick Mahomes, man. Great arm. You don't know always where it's going, but he throws a pretty spiral to the other team. Uh, it seems like the Jets are drafting a lot of those guys, going from Sam Darnold to Zach Wilson, but I digress on that front. Not getting the 13th overall pick, though. It was just simply never going to happen. And I kind of view this as, look, they just traded Elijah Moore. They got a pick swap where they got another second-round pick. They now have two second-round picks back-to-back. That feels like the compensation we're going to end up getting here when it's all said and done. And... I don't know if they're going to get it done before the draft or if it's going to go uh, stretch on to after the draft. I think everyone would be a lot better off if they got this done before the draft. So, you know, we we knew where we were. Uh, we're not dealing with 2024 draft compensation all the way down the line here. We're, we're just dealing with what's happening this year. Uh, deadline spurred decisions. So I'm, I'm hoping in the next couple weeks they get that resolved uh, and get a trade done. I'm, I'm tired of thinking about it because everyone knows when it's all said and done, Aaron Rodgers is going to play for the Jets. No, 
No matter when it ends up happening, he's going to end up playing for them. So it's only a matter of time. This was a big mental hurdle to clear, though. The Packers definitely not getting the 13th overall pick. They just realized that themselves. So they're they're on their way to finally getting this deal done. And again, interested to see what Jordan Love does over there uh, with the Packers. They may have, they may end up having like the worst team in the division when it's all said and done uh, in the NFC North. But I'm excited to see what Jordan Love does there in that offense. Might have a very, I mean, it might be kind of reminiscent of what we saw from Aaron Rodgers in his first season where they went 6-10, and 10, but Aaron Rodgers put up some big-time numbers. That might might be what we're seeing from the Packers here next season. Uh, we'll wait and see, though. I digress on that front. Uh, let's move on to uh, some more player movement here. Tight end Irv Smith, former Viking, signed a one-year deal with the Bengals. He is now slated as their starting tight end because uh, their second string is Devin Asiasi. Uh, not great over there. They got, I mean, he's going to be great for him for five games. I'll tell you what, Irv, definitely good for five games, which he'll, you know, probably be healthy before his body to completely implodes uh, like it has basically every year he's been in the league. And don't get me wrong. I Anytime a player leaves the Vikings, unless they've badmouthed us on the way out the door, and I do say us because, you know what, as far as long as I can remember, the war has raged. Well, the war did rage when I was a kid between my mother and my father to try and sway me over to either side on either being a Packers fan or a Vikings fan. Divided household, you know how it is. Uh, but you know what? I went with the Vikings early, and I've stuck with them for over 20 years at this point. So... I'm going to say the royal we, the us, if you will. As long as he doesn't badmouth us on the way out the door, I truly hope for the best for Irv Smith's career. I hope for all... I mean, hell, Aaron, Eric Kendricks. I mean, a great Viking. We cut him. I wish we hadn't. You know what? It... I understand there are some tough decisions to be made. I wish we could have gotten a contract restructured him, but I understand why he needed to go. I am so happy that he ended up on his feet. I think he's going to have a damn good season with the Chargers next year, and I wish all the best for him. I wish all the best for Irv Smith and his career, but at the same time, living here in reality, he's never been able to stay healthy at all. I mean, not at all, and I have no reason to think that he will next season. I mean, it's either been an ankle or a shoulder or a knee. It's it's always something with Irv Smith. I mean, he's an explosive sort of athlete. I think he ended up running like a 4-5, four, 4-6 four, coming out of college. A really good route runner, good change of direction sort of guy. Just can't stay on the field. I have no reason to believe that he'll do that next season. The Bengals have a great wide receiver core. Don't get me wrong. They have maybe the best wide receiver core strictly in the entire league between Higgins and Chase and Boyd. In interested to see how they work things out between, I mean, you got two big-time contract demanders in, in T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, and you got a cheap-ass ownership group uh, with the Browns up there, Katie Blackburn running things. But, you know, it's still Mike Brown cutting the checks when it's all said and done. Um, interested to see how that all works out. Still great wide receiver core for another year. But they have unquestionably downgraded at tight end from what they had in Hayden Hurst uh, last year and what he brought to the table. Um, I certainly hope for Irv Smith's case. I think he can really, it's a one-year deal, so he can really cash in next year if he does have a fully healthy season, uh, maybe go out in the open market and, and get some good money, get a, get a nice nice contract there. Uh, and, you know, really, the second contract, uh, the the big contract generally, I'm I'm totally fumbling around for words here, but generally players get one big contract in their entire year, in their entire career rather, and I'm hoping Irv Smith gets that. I, I really do hope he gets that. I think we hope he has a healthy season. I just don't have a whole lot of uh, reason to believe that at this point. And the Bengals still got Joe Burrow, so I don't think you drop off too much. Uh, still got either whether it's Joe Mixon, Samaje Piran. I'm 
I'm still unsure whether they made any sort of decision there. Big cap hit for Joe Mixon uh, and Samaj P. Ryan, a little bit more favorable on that front, but who's to say? Also, same sort of situation with Dalvin Cook. They're letting out uh, letting out news that his his shoulder surgery went well. He's making good progress, um, getting close to 100% healthy over there. So, uh, who's to who's to say what happens there? I, again, I just lumped the Vikings into whatever story that I'm talking about because I am an unapologetic homer. But uh, I digress on that front. Hope for the best for Irv Smith. Expecting the worst though, because that's just kind of unfortunately what the story of his entire career has been up until this point. Bengals got some things to figure out this year. Uh, offense is the least of their worries. They lost all sorts of players on the defensive side, uh, specifically on the back end. So interested to see how that all works out. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty much no one team is going to separate. I think the Browns are maybe still, uh, hell, the Bengals might have the worst roster in the division and they still are probably uh second or third in the division. I mean, Browns might, uh, no team in that entire NFC or AFC North rather is, is bad. And that's kind of been the case for the last several years. Maybe the most entertaining division to watch uh, in all of football when it comes to just the jockeying of standings, if you will, especially if you like defensive football and you like absolute slop fest come, uh, come winter time. I mean, AFC North is always, always the spot for you uh, when it's all said and done. And my last headline here before I uh, transition to a, a quick segment. Hey, it is segment season, so doing a little segment on the way out the door here. Um, actually, no, I completely misread that. We got some more headlines, at least one more headline after this, so uh, I digress on that front. Either way, Anthony Richardson had his pro day, and my only conclusion is that... Uh, the sports media is chock full of simpletons, and we learned nothing from the Zach Wilson Pro Day a couple years ago. No recording here. All right. And had to go to the bathroom there real quick, but we are back. We are back and talking about Anthony Richardson and his Pro Day that had everyone in the media losing their minds because we're in a bit of a downtime, and we have to have stuff to talk about when it's all said and done. I'm not going to say he'll be a bust or anything, this Anthony Richardson, because he seems to have uh, the work ethic and the mindset to improve the deficiencies in his game that are clearly there. Obviously, there's there's a reason he threw for 53% completion percentage, and it's not just because... 53% completion is not just because of your receivers. You can throw around 60 if your receivers stink. I'll tell you that right now. There were some serious flaws uh, to, to how he threw the ball. He's going to need to sit for a while and learn some stuff. But also... We did not learn a damn thing from watching Errol Richardson at the, at the Combine or his Pro Day, for that matter. Yet even with that fact, people in sports media predictably got hyped up about Richardson looking like a crazy athlete, uh, intentionally uh, throwing and hitting the roof in the in the Florida facility, um, I, I, you know, doing the doing the the handspring or whatever you call it, the the gym, gymnastics move where he did like a front flip or. Uh, whatever the hell you call that sort of maneuver he did. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know. I'm not really uh, uh, totally impressed with all that stuff because we already knew he was a crazy athlete. If you even followed college football or SEC football in particular, even a little bit, or if you followed any of the preseason rhetoric coming in, even a little bit. Huh. Even after the first week, Anthony Richardson, we just knew, damn, he had some crazy athletic measurables, and he's going to absolutely blow some people away at the combine. What, what do you know? That's exactly what happened there. Um, 
people are going to act like this is this is big news and and you know what we got to got to trade up and get Anthony Richardson. We need to take Ri- Anthony Richardson maybe not number 1 overall, but I mean we got to get trade up and get this guy because someone's going to get him and you know he's a he's a surefire prospect. I mean just look at look at Zach Wilson. That turned out real well. And uh yeah, we we have truly learned nothing from Zach Wilson or any one of the countless players who shine at their pro day, but ended up being uh, a complete bust anyways. I think uh, one thing that pops into mind, I think it was uh, Mel Kuyper effusively talking about Jimmy Clausen, saying that he'd retire if Jimmy Clausen ended up being a bust. I think Jimmy Clausen was another one of those guys that had a, a fantastic pro day. You can't, I mean, the pro day is even less reliable than the combine at this point. The pro day is like... Like in a dictatorial regime, like say in North Korea, where they're they're taking a camera in and they're walking you through a grocery store. Look at look at all these stocked shelves. Look at how prosperous we are in our communist system in North Korea. Look at look at what true communism can do for the people when you know they're not showing you. They just moved all of the produce in the entire store to one tiny little section, and uh, they're they're just showing you what they want to show you. That's precisely what these pro days are right here. They're just they're just putting out propaganda, showing you only what they want to show you and conveniently shying away from the things that they don't. Uh, so yeah, you, you got to see Anthony Richardson's cannon arm. You got to see his uh, explosive athleticism. And that's pretty much all you got to see. We didn't learn a damn thing. People are going to tell you we learned something, but take it from me. If you're if you're new to this whole sports, uh, sports rigmarole, if you will, pro days are meaningless. Combine is mostly meaningless for quarterbacks. Nothing truly matters outside of the interviews and uh, the, the the college game tape, uh, also the the situation they go to. No, nothing outside of those three things really matters in the grand scheme of, of evaluating quarterbacks. And you know what? Most of that stuff is completely over our heads to even analyze. Also, the interview stuff. Outside of what we're hearing leaked from from different team officials, we don't even know. We don't have cameras in those rooms. We don't know how those things actually went. I mean, there's some weird sort of. Uh, I, I had a little back and forth with one Arif Hassan, on, you know, prominent Vikings fan, and well, I don't know if he's Vikings fan or just covers the Vikings. Either way, had a little back and forth with with Arif Hassan uh, talking about on Twitter about like uh, the the weird narrative surrounding Will Levis and. He brought up a good point. I thought, I mean, there were some weird sort of quotes coming out from Colin Cowherd in particular about uh, that teams don't like him or whatnot, uh, all this sort of stuff. On one hand, I was like, okay, this is Colin Cowherd, and he's basically made his entire career off of making inflammatory statements. And uh, again, this is something we all learned from, maybe not we all, but we learned from the professional wrestling world. Any sort of engagement is good engagement. And, you know, Twitter's been on that kick for a long time. And you know what? The, the people that, that are the loudest are often the angriest. And you know what? A good way to make people angry is just to make statements that are abjectly ridiculous and get dunked on in the process. I mean, Colin Cowherd has made millions on millions and millions of dollars of just getting, standing under the hoop and getting by any any random passerby that happens to come around and you know what i respect him for making that career out of that um i'm I'm not going to traffic in that sort of stuff but at the same time these are some weird sort of narratives kind of circulating about uh will levis at this point it's really outside of that Uh, i kind of kind of delineated from the anthony richardson thing uh on the whole but 
I think a lot of the a lot of the information. That's all to say we don't know anything about what happened in these in these 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 meeting rooms at the combine. We don't know what happened behind the scenes at any of these pro days, and those are the most important things. So I'm I'm just gonna shy away from all that sort of stuff uh, until draft day, unless we get some some serious sort of intel uh, coming out that that some team is going to pick uh, whoever at the number one pick, or I guess it would probably be the Panthers there because they're the one with the number one pick. But that is all to say. A lot of stuff you're hearing right now is just total BS from teams trying to either drop a guy's draft prospects down so they can get him. Uh, I think that's a lot of what you're seeing with Will Levis. I think specifically the Raiders down there at seven are just hoping probably like, hey, put out some bad information. Like, hey, if if Will Levis can come out with, with, a, with a, a gas mask bong video. I think that would be the perfect scenario for the Raiders and any of those those teams picking in the back end of the top ten uh, that want to have him uh, slide all that way. So again, just just know that every every bit of information that comes out at this time of year, uh, pre-draft leading up to the draft, it's coming out for a reason, um, and that's that's generally always the case. But especially right now, teams are putting out information about these players for a reason. It's because they want to get these players, uh, whether it's you know later in the draft or, or trying to throw off the scent so they can draft them before anyone's really expecting. Um, either way, though, I've already I've completely gone off the rails from Anthony Richardson. This is why I probably need a, a designated producer uh, to actually get me back on the rails sometimes. But yeah, it's a one man operation. What are you gonna do? Uh, outside of that, though, we got uh, one major headline from outside of the NFL right now. Uh, the NBA and the NBA, the MBPA. That just boggles my mind is not the right phraseology, but it just it just grinds my gears that it's not NBA PA because it's the NFL PA on the other side. But no, it's National Basketball Players Association, not 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 basketball National Basketball Association Players Association. Which I guess when you put it out that way, it makes a lot of sense why it's MBPA. But still, I'm I'm a creature of habit, and I hate that it's just MBPA. Either way, they beat the buzzer, uh, extended the deadline uh, a little bit. But got a new CBA done, agreed on a new collective bargaining agreement for the NBA. The new deal will start next season, going to run for six years before they have an opportunity for a mutual opt-out. And uh, a couple things have changed in this this little CBA. I mean, not really uh, a whole lot to get into as far as the weeds are concerned because it's a damn near 600-page document. There's probably some stuff buried in there uh, that we'll, we'll find out about later that would, you know, not necessarily the most intuitively obvious things in the world. But for now, we'll just hit the highlights here real quick. Uh, the one-and-done rule will remain in place for the foreseeable future, and that's... I think that's codified in the CBA, uh, so it's going to be a while until that thing uh, gets repealed, uh, for better or for worse. I mean, it, at the very least, we get some some high-level NBA talent uh, gracing the college game, which I guess I have mixed feelings about, but, you know, whatever. It, it is what it is at this point. 65-game uh, minimum for postseason awards, that's kind of to... Um, that's kind of to deter the the load management sort of thing. I mean, you're seeing players like like Kawhi Leonard go. I mean, I'm not even really playing half the games of the season and, and still being considered for All NBA teams for MVP, uh, comeback player, most improved player of the year, yada yada yada. You won't be considered for any of those in the new CBA uh, unless you have a, a minimum of 65 games played. I like that rule. I think you know the load management has gotten to a point where it is totally taken away from the product itself and I, I i love this i love this idea i, I think having having a, a minimum game for postseason awards really helps things um outside of that though teams above a second tier of the luxury tax will be restricted from sending cash in deals 
uh, trading first round picks seven years out and signing players in the buyout market. Also, teams above that second threshold won't be allowed to use the mid mid level exception to sign players. And what does all that stuff mean? It's a lot of financial stuff, but basically, it's a big old fuck you to the Warriors on uh, on basically all. I mean, the Warriors have spent more money uh, to acquire um, players on their team, just about anybody else in the entire league. Um, the the Milwaukee Bucks have done similar stuff like this. Um, it, it's kind of like in, in hockey where if you got a player on like injured reserve or, or the disabled list, whatever they call it in hockey, um, you can bring him back for the postseason and kind of like have it not count against the cap or something like that, uh, and just kind of like beef up your team. Now, it's kind of a, a similar equivalence there. It's less less of a loophole, more of just uh, the rich teams can spend all the money they want and acquire all the players, and they're they're kind of like you know smoothing it out a little bit, making it a little bit more costly for teams to to go over the luxury tax, which will probably lead to a little bit more parity. Some some people are saying that it's you know it's, it's going to kill dynasties. That's that's really not true at all because they also had some some stuff that's gonna it's gonna help teams keep big time players instead of uh you know basically being shit out of luck if they have three really good players we'll get to that in just a second uh, more about the luxury tax the luxury tax thresholds. Uh, used to move up in $5 million increments each year. Uh, that's going to scale with the cap each season now. So it's kind of proportionally, I guess, like percentage-wise, uh, year over year. What percentage did the cap grow year over year? That's the percentage that the luxury tax uh, brackets are going to grow as well. That just makes sense. I mean, the $5 million increments, that makes absolutely zero sense. Having a, having a set number like that, eventually it's going to go very out of whack in terms of, um, um, like, proportionally how it moves with the cap. I mean, if the cap moves up like a giant percentage, uh, but the $5 million increment is still there, uh, you're kind of putting some teams in a bind in that way. And it's, you know, I understand what they're doing here with that. Uh, It's, it's different. Like they want, yeah, Jesus Christ. It's different than what they had previously. I think it's a little bit better on that front. Uh, also, teams can now have more than two Supermax contracts. This is what I was alluding to before on the books. So this is particularly relevant for teams like Cleveland, who already has Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell with Evan Mobley's extension uh, on the horizon as well. And I guess this more helps small market teams than big market teams that are willing to to dole out the cash on the open market uh, to sign a team, sign a player to a, a big time max contract. But um, I think it's good for the league. I think if you, if you have if you're good enough at drafting players uh, or good enough at, at trading for players, whatever it happens to be, that you end up having two three guys that deserve a super max on your roster. I think you should be able to pay those guys a supermax. I don't think there should be any sort of uh, any sort of restriction on how many big time contracts you can make because there's always there, there's always the you got to pay the piper on the back end pretty much. I mean, if you got those three supermax contracts, the rest of the roster is basically being filled out with like uh, like mid level exception sort of players, uh, lower priced veterans, all all sort of stuff like that. You're not gonna have as deep of a team if you got three supermax contracts on the books anyways. So. I mean, might as well. I mean, it's it's really it's it's a trade off sort of thing, and it, it keeps good players in in place uh, in the in the, the with the teams that drafted them when it's all said and done. So again, it kind of helps with a little bit more parity and all that stuff. And uh, another, I think, kind of the biggest sort of addition here, uh, as far as the entertainment product and on the court product is concerned. They're having an in-season tournament with uh, pool play baked in the regular season schedule in November. Then they got an eight-team single elimination tournament 
in December. Um, still, everyone outside of the finalists is going to play 82 games. The, the finalists are going to play an extra game for that 83. But with that extra game, the winning players and coaches will earn additional prize money on top of their existing contracts. So you got some, you know, a little bit of intrigue going in there. You got, you know, something to, something to kind of mix things up a little bit. And I think the players are going to be motivated by that extra money as well. I feel like you're going to get some intense sort of games. Players looking for those big six-figure checks coming in. And I think it's a good idea. I think a lot of these things that they're adding in, uh, I don't think... I mean, they probably buried the bad ideas well within that 600-page uh, uh, CBA somewhere. But all the stuff that's coming out, it's different, and it's it's a good kind of different in this new CBA. So I like it. Um, and I think the the one that I'm not sure it's gotten the most traction, but um, the one that I would not consider a good idea that came out of all of this is players can now invest in uh, NBA and WNBA teams in small increments, and that's kind of they're not. It's, it's, it was kind of a, um, a misframing of it from what it actually is. They can invest, quote-unquote, in the, in the NBA, NBA and WNBA teams. What they're really doing is they're investing in a fund that buys uh, a proportional share of, of whatever NBA or WNBA team you're buying into. So you're not necessarily investing in the NBA team or the, the basketball teams proper. You're investing in a fund which invests in, in the, uh, the teams uh, on the flip side of things. So not quite... Uh, what it was, it was, it was billed as, but that's also not the, that's also not the headline I'm, I'm looking at here. They're also allowed to, players can now invest in and take sponsorships from gambling platforms and the sponsorships. I understand. I mean, I, the sponsorships, there's not really uh, much bad going on there as far as the, the sponsorships goes. Investing in gambling platforms. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that one. Chief. This could get uh, messy mixing the players with gambling. That's, that's the best way to put it. And there are some very rich players, and there are some very big gambling platforms. Obviously, it's more regulated now. There's a lot more oversight than just the, the back alley bookie, if you will. But this just kind of creeps in more and more the incentive for these players to maybe take a dive. And I'm not saying any one player would do it, but all you're doing is you're just ratcheting up. Oh, we got a big old investment in, say, FanDuel Sportsbook, if you will. Or we got a big old investment in DraftKings. Would it be advantageous sometimes to maybe uh, you know, take a dive in favor of the sports book every so often? You know, maybe take a good windfall. It could be good for profits when it's all said and done. And it's kind of a reach more than anything. But this is, it's, it's blurring the lines in a way that I think, I'm not saying it will get messy down the line. I'm, I'm no guarantees of that whatsoever. But I could really see this thing getting messy. I, I could see some very morally questionable things happening just because you could get some really big investments uh, that could very much, you could see some very tangible financial benefit if you were to maybe fix some games every so often. And I I, I have some really mixed feelings on this one. Um, I think, you know, it, it's, it's free market. I guess you should probably be able to invest in what you want to invest in. But there seems like a pretty clear conflict of interest when it comes to, uh, uh, I mean, sure, you can take sponsorship money from sports books. That's, that's kind of different. Investing money to where your incentives are pretty much aligned as, as a sports book and, a, uh, and an investor, I could see that getting messy. And I've said that a couple times now, which is probably a good indication that I need to move on. But that's one thing that I think... Uh, for all the good changes I think that happened in this CBA, and I think there are a lot of good changes. I think C.J. McCollum and uh, whoever the executive uh, president of the MBPA is, I think they did a good job of, of you know, 
coming to compromise with the with the teams and kind of getting stuff that's good for the game while also being good for the players to a certain extent as well. I think a lot stuff some of the stuff I didn't include, like you know, uh, some of the the lower mid level players, they're getting a, a pay bump as well. They're getting uh, some of these rookie contracts. Uh, you're allowed to get uh, an even higher like percentage increase from from what they had before, uh, as far as like the amount of money you can get. I mean, basically ends up helping a lot of players monetary wise. But at the end of the day, this is one that I'm. This is one change. The investing in sports books, I am not so sure about. So we'll have to see how it goes. I, I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping it doesn't sully the uh, the integrity of the game. But they're really opening them, themselves up for some very awkward and uncomfortable situations to present themselves down the road. But we won't know until we get there. This this CBA should go into effect in the 2023-2024 season. So we'll see how it all shakes out. We'll see if it you know improves things in the court a little bit, uh, curbs the, uh, the, the load management stuff that has kind of uh, plagued the NBA regular season, made it basically unwatchable outside of uh, if you're if you got bets on the on the um, on the games. And uh, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens there. But that is the last of the headlines I have got. But I got one quick segment for you on the way out. And in honor of the Masters, I mean, Masters is starting up this week, and I don't know shit about golf. So uh, to an even lesser extent than I, I know about college basketball or baseball, in that matter, at the very least, I bet on baseball and, and a little bit on college basketball. I mean, hey, if you took, if you rode with me on UConn minus seven and a half, you're sitting pretty here on this fine, uh, this fine morning here. But outside of that, I mean, I know even less about golf and all that sort of stuff. So instead of giving y'all terrible, useless golf takes, I decided to keep it in my wheelhouse here a little bit. And uh, here's the here's the thing. Let me frame it for you. Anyone who has watched even the smallest amount of coverage of the Masters. Uh, know that the golfers aren't really the draw here. It's the course itself. It's the azaleas. It's the immaculate curation of everything that is Augusta National. I mean, just the most beautiful golf course maybe in the entire world. Just picturesque. You go there once a year and you step into a spring paradise every single time you go there. There's going to be a little bit of rain this time, but still, it is one of the more beautiful uh, venues in all of, of sports, actually. I mean, regardless of how you feel about the club's administration, Augusta National itself, and, you know, you can look back and there's a interesting racial history there and in sexist history as far as, you know, not allowing uh, black people and or women to, to join the club. Uh, color me shocked that a bunch of old white people that like golf are, are a little bit on the racist and sexist side. I would have never guessed, but uh, outside of how you feel about that administration, Augusta National is maybe the most immaculate setting in all of sports. So, in honor of that, I wanted to go through the three major sports that I have some degree of knowledge on. I ain't got a goddamn idea about what hockey is, so I've, I've excluded them. I, hell, if I included the hockey in this, I'd be putting the, the, the Las Vegas Knights home stadium in their home arena in there because it seems like an electric atmosphere. So, I, in, in, in the interest of not pissing off uh, the five hockey listeners out there, uh, well, there's only five listeners a week, so the, the, the point one hockey listener out there, there's only a tenth of one hockey listener out there that is listening to this, uh, I'd like to give my opinion on which home atmosphere is the most iconic in each of the three major sports. I'm talking MLB. I'm talking NBA. I'm talking NFL. Disagree if you'd like. I'm often grossly misinformed on these types of things, but in my opinion, let's just embrace debate here. These are the most iconic ven venues in MLB, in NBA, and in the NFL. And we'll start off with the MLB. 
This is the sport I know least about, quite frankly, and therefore have the highest chance of being wrong. But to me, it kind of came down to Dodger Stadium and Wrigley Field. And I gave the nod to Wrigley for a few reasons here. First, uh, and least consequentially, Wrigley has been open for nearly 50 more years than Dodger Stadium. They opened like 1914 or something like that. Uh, been open for 109 years. I mean, it wasn't the ultimate determinant, but Wrigley being one open for over 100 years certainly ingrains it in the history of the game of baseball in a slightly more prominent way than Dodger Stadium it is. Uh, second, and most consequentially, in my opinion, this is basically what sold it for me, it's all about what you envision when you think of the sport of baseball. When you think of Dodger Stadium, I can't really picture any one prominent feature that stands out through the course of time. I mean, my first thought is basically just Dodger dogs, which I mean, I'll shove those wieners straight in my mouth, and you can take that any way you want. I'm talking about hot dogs, but if it makes you feel better, think about it other ways as well. But that wasn't the ultimate determinant. Oh, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong bullet point here. When I think of Wrigley Field, on the other hand, the first thing that pops in my mind is the ivy on the wall over the outfield. It's that hard brick with the ivy on it. They've had it there for decades on decades. It's the only fixture in any ballpark in the MLB in my mind that is really burned into my mind as a, as a casual observer to the sport. I mean, I guess you could maybe maybe say uh, in the in the Giants Stadium. Uh, they got the the bay out there. I mean, hitting home runs into the bay with the with with the kayakers out there going for home run balls. Basically, uh, not watching the game at all, just kind of sprinting towards, if you will, uh, the home run balls that land in the bay. That's an iconic picture, but certainly not as iconic as the the ivy at Wrigley Field. I mean, it's just it's it's an immaculate sort of setting. The ivy and that hard ass brick wall behind it are the true separators in my mind. No image has been more consistently synonymous with what fans love about the, the Major League Baseball and all that sort of stuff. And I think the fact that even in the face of a historic championship drought by the Cubs, I mean, hundred-some years between championships over there, the fact that that image of the Ivy on the outfield wall was still synonymous with the MLB in the way that it has been for years and years. That tells you just about all you need to know about how iconic that venue is. Wrigley is my most iconic field uh, venue uh, in the MLB. In the NBA, easiest one to pick by far uh, of the group. Uh, James Dolan might be a bumbling moron uh, who has run the Knicks into the ground, uh, but like the oil-producing nations in the Middle East, there might be a lot of bad going on. But they've got one asset that will keep them afloat in the Middle East. It is the oil. In New York, it's Madison Square Garden. It is by far the most iconic venue in the NBA. And I'm not sure there's a whole lot of people ingrained in basketball that will tell you any different. There's a reason they call it the Mecca of basketball. And it's not just that the venue is iconic. The stadium experience is apparently top-notch in just about every way. You know, as long as you're not Charles Oakley, it, the stadium experience is absolutely top-notch. And as long as you don't just offend James Dolan, uh, the stadium experience is top-notch as well. But the only arenas that really come close to MSG are the newer ones out in California that the Mega Billionaires are just made. And those don't really have the history to be considered uh, even close to iconic. So MSG, Madison Square Garden beats the rest by a mile in the iconic department. So that is easily the most iconic uh, venue in the NBA. And as far as the NFL, really in my wheelhouse here, I wouldn't say that picking the most iconic stadium in the NFL was quite as easy as picking MSG for the NBA, but it's still pretty clear 
there's not a stadium more symbolic to the history of the league than Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, and maybe this is maybe this is my NFC North bias coming out by my mother being a Packers fan. Maybe that's maybe that's part of this. But you can make an argument for Arrowhead or Ackershire Stadium, formerly known as Heinz Field, if you don't remember that they you know Heinz completely abandoned the city of Pittsburgh or the the Superdome. But none of them really have the history, the historical significance, and the meaning that Lambeau does in the context of the league as a whole. I mean, again, it kind of just feels like I'm, I'm going with the oldest stadium in the league. I promise I'm not doing that. But it's it's not the physical age of the stadium that makes the place great. It's the it's the image of the frozen tundra. It's, it's the Ice Bowl versus the Cowboys. It's Lombardi. It's Bart Starr, Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers. All the iconic moments, all the iconic players, all the iconic coaches from NFL history that ran through there. That really no other stadium can match when it's all said and done. It's in a town of a little under 110,000, but its significance is larger than any other in the context of building the league to where it is today. I mean, there's just no other place like it in the entire NFL. To this day... There's more Packers fans around the world than just about any other team, short of, say, maybe maybe the Cowboys might have more, but it's the Packers. I mean, you, you can find Packers fans basically in any sort of country all over the world. They're out there. You can probably find a Packers bar anywhere in the world. And the lasting image in all those fans' minds is of the stadium in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that stadium, Lambeau Field. So if we're going to compare one venue in the NFL with Augusta in terms of significance to the game, Maybe it's just the NFC North homerism in me. I can I can totally accept that if that is the case, but no other venue really holds a candle to Lambeau Field when it's all said and done. And with that, we're, you know, about an hour 40 into this thing, so it's time to cut this thing off. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed, I mean, God bless your heart. I don't think this was the best episode in the world, but it, it is what it is at this point. It's in the books, folks. But uh, if you enjoyed, subscribe, leave a five-star rating so we can grow this bad boy a little bit. If you didn't enjoy it, just take that opinion to the grave. Tell people you loved it anyways. I'd, I'd much appreciate that. Uh, I release one episode per week until football is back in full swing during the offseason. Really no telling what I'm going to get into in this in these episodes. So could be good, could be terrible. Tune in to find out, I suppose. That's my marketing pitch to you, the listener and or viewer out there, because hopefully I'm going to get this up on YouTube uh, either later today or tomorrow. It's, it's hard to say. This actual audio recording should be up in, I don't know, an hour or so after I record it. So look forward to that. In the meantime, follow me on all my socials at Caleb Verzak. Link will be in the description so you don't have to spell my fucked up Eastern block name. I understand it's five letters, that, that last name, but who's to say what those letters are at any given point? I understand. It's it's hard to spell those Eastern European names as a, as a garden variety uh, American fuck. So, understandable. If you want to contact the show, uh, either shoot me a DM on Twitter. I'll probably be more responsive that way. Or you can shoot me an email at unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. That's unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. Just put business or show in the subject line so I can categorize you accordingly. And with that, thank you so much for tuning in to Unqualified Analysis. And as always, 
I've got zero clue what I'm talking about. And it was very apparent in this episode. The prep was not quite what it has been in the past. Uh, one thing I learned this week on the way out the door, in 1964, a 9.2 magnitude earthquake, I think the second largest in world history, in recorded world history anyways, uh, hit off the coast of Alaska, resulting in several tsunamis across the western seaboard. One town that was particularly devastated was the coastal town of Valdez, Alaska, and this was absolutely insane the things that happened in Valdez. The soil underneath Valdez itself, I mean it was mostly just sand and gravel, that all liquefied and most if not all the town basically just slid into the ocean. I mean just absolutely collapsed into the bay, uh, just being part of the waves that kept going. And due to the layout of the bay and the, the sliding of the land into the bay itself, which Valdez was situated on, the wave sloshed around like a bowl pretty much and created some massive super waves. One of those super waves measured at, get this, over 200 feet tall, which is hard to even wrap your mind around. A 200 foot tall uh, wave, one of the most horrifying things I can imagine in my mind. So there you go. Crazy thing I learned this week. I mean, Earth, I mean, we live in just a small little epoch of time that we could not... I mean, we couldn't survive at any other time. I mean, life is fragile, folks. So, yeah, with that, hope you're not depressed. Let's uh, I'll see you next week, I suppose. I'm going to stop talking now.